0: <laughs>
1: Good afternoon everyone, we're going to get started now. I'm Judy Lankhans from the Continuing Nursing Education Office at the Center for Learning and Professional Development. I'd like to thank you for joining us for our February session of Nursing Grand Rounds entitled Improving the Care of Patients with Non-Operative Traumatic Spine Fractures. But I'd also like to welcome anyone that's joining us online and also the group that's joining us from Haudenosa Scutney today. The learning objectives for the presentation will be in the slides, and just a few housekeeping details. Be sure to sign in, sign in sheet from the back of the room, you must attend 80% of this program to receive credit, and this educational activity carries one contact hour. For those viewing online, I'll be monitoring my email during the presentation, so if you have any questions, you can email me and I'll relay them to the speakers. Also, to receive credit, please email me within one hour after the presentation with your name, license, and zip code, and let me know that you viewed the presentation live. Um, my email address is Judith.M as in May, Langhans, that's L-A-N-G-H-A-N-S, at Hitchcock.org. Everyone attending today will receive a link to an online evaluation after the program to see any office values your feedback and hopes you take a moment to complete the evaluation. Your contact hour will be posted to your online transcript within two weeks. There are instructions in the back of the room on how to access your online transcript or you can contact me if you need any assistance. None of our speakers nor the planning committee members have identified a financial interest or relationship with a commercial entity or any conflict of interest regarding this activity and no one refused to disclose. So our speakers today are Deb Fournier, Hillary Hawkins, and Deb Sweetland. Um, the purpose of this presentation is to share the progress of a long-term multidisciplinary project this presentation was previously um, presented at Value Grand Rounds in September. Please join me in welcoming <coughs> our presenters and their um, Thanks for coming. I understand
2: there were three nursing grand rounds this week, so um, thanks for choosing this one, or if you were lucky enough to get to all three, excellent. We're gonna um, tell a story today. And before I do that, just a highlight uh, who's here talking about it, and to recognize that this is the product of work of a very large team, and we'll mm. talk about how, why that needed to be the case. But I'm Deb Forney, I'm a nurse practitioner. I work for the Trauma and Acute Care Surgery Division. Um, my passion, though, lies in rehab medicine, and uh, right now I'm really focusing on the complex rehabilitation issues after traumatic brain and spinal cord injury. Hillary Hawkins is an emergency response nurse and the interim manager of our trauma program helping us to maintain our level one status uh level status and deb sweetland is our director and inpatient manager uh, manager for the inpatient rehab team also an occupational therapist and came to us with a lot of experience in um, value projects so although we are going to be discussing several a couple of different products one from an outside vendor um, uh, Called Willowbrook, a private prosthetic and orthotic company, and one from Aspen Medical. But they want to make it clear that they didn't provide any financial support for this research, and they're only beginning to um, see some of our results. And we're not talking about any knowledge or off label use of their product. Um, So, as I mentioned, this uh, has grown out of a large team. This project started in 2010 with uh, myself and Dr. Bradley, and Mary American Boardman from Finance, sitting down and looking at some of our statistics. How we use a product and what happens in the product line. And that gave rise to this project. Dr. Um, soon to be, Dr. Greg Hansen, very ambitious young medical student who uh, is doing all of our chart reviews for us. So unfortunately he can not join us for the presentation, but I think you'll be seeing his name a little bit more often. So, as Judy mentioned, our objectives are to talk about um, the problem, that we're going to identify a problem around the variance in management of patients with non-operative spine fractures. We're going to look at the risks associated with those variants, and especially is going to highlight why this is a problem, why we don't mobilize <laughs> these patients faster, and how that affects our value of care. And then we're going to talk a little bit about, you know, hopefully walk away with some thoughts about how our process of using a multidisciplinary team to attack this problem might be able to generalize to your setting. So just briefly we're talking about fractures that affect the thoracolumbar spine and when we talk about fractures the spine would think about sometimes perhaps uh, a spine um, in three different columns. This first column is the majority of the vertebral body. The middle column includes part of the vertebral body and extends towards the spine's processes. And the posterior column is as you see there. And the whole point of the spine, the uh, uh, bony part of the spine, is to protect the section here representing the spinal cord. Right. So when we look at fractures of the spine, we're looking at the stability of the vertebral body and, and doing its job of protecting the spinal cord. So, those are um, fracture types are categorized by how much of the spine is affected and how well it is uh, able to still do its job. So, compression and burst fractures are primarily managed non operatively. When we have a flexion or a fracture dislocation, those are the fractures, folks with uh, those types of fractures are more apt to make like it to the room. Um, So we're talking about folks with compression fractures and burst fractures that did not have any neurologic deficit, did not require surgical intervention. So we're going to talk a little bit more about why this is a problem. We um, recognize that when we have two different spine consult services managing patients, that there's a variance in how they provide care. And we're going to talk about why that's a problem not just in variance. Uh, In general, we know that. We've heard a lot about why uh, reducing variance reduces complications, but specifically this population, why are the complications with this strategy so problematic? We're talking about what we've done about it so far and how we think that our interventions have started to shift the value equation and what we still have left to do. So when we think about, when we recognize that there's a problem, we want to take a systematic approach to evaluating what to do with that problem. So, um, most of us had the opportunity to learn from Dr. Titler, she was here recently, and this is, you know, how she outlines this approach. To think first about what is the problem focused tr- trigger? What do we need to look at to really, why do we need to change? And what we highlighted, as I just mentioned, is that we recognize that there's one injury, right? Thoracolumbar spine fractures that don't require operative intervention. But there's two consult teams, and there's multiple approaches to the care. And that we realized that there's a lot of disparity in the time to mobilize patients, to have folks up and walking after this injury. And that we know that why is this a problem now? Why do we need to pay attention? Because there's a lot of complications associated with immobility, But we're all very familiar with. So we went to the literature, and we discovered we were hoping to find some standards that we could just apply here that maybe someone else has figured out how to do really well, and they aren't there. So we got sort of to the end of our algorithm and realized we we need to start from square one. So we did. We tried to review the process, by thinking about um, what happens to our patients, right? This is how we start, by mapping sort of the flow of our patients as they enter our system. So when a patient who experiences a trauma enters our system and a trauma fracture is identified in their spine, The spine consult is called. Right now, in our institution, that spine consult pager is covered 50-50 by neurosurgery and orthopedic spine teams. So you've got a 50-50 shot as to whether or not your spine fracture is evaluated by a neurosurgeon or an orthopedic spine surgeon. After the consult is called, the resident, the surgical resident and the intentional surgeon evaluate the fracture based on imaging and clinical exam, obviously. Decide who goes to the OR, The majority of folks don't go to the OR. So then they're faced with the decision, does this person need a brace of some sort, a back brace of some sort? And then what happens? A back brace is ordered from an outside vendor, Uh, the patient is measured for that brace, the brace gets delivered, the patient is then mobilized and hopefully discharged shortly thereafter. But as we looked deeper into that process, we realized that there is a large disparity in how the teams were making their decision about who got a brace. Remember, there's no literature. We don't have any standards here to apply. And then once they got the brace, there was still additional variance in how they managed their care. That one team chose to um, engage uh, use a lot of x-rays to assess the patient um, before allowing them to mobilize, and one team didn't use any. So we knew we needed to take a deeper look. Just to give you a quick idea as to what this looks like. This is a TLSO, a custom-made chlorocolumbar spinal orthosis. This piece of plastic, what happens is it, uh, a PO specialist, a prosthetic specialist, comes to Darton Pitchcock after we call them, say we need a custom TLSO made. They take measurements of the patient, they go back to their shop and they mold this piece of plastic into place. It takes at least one overnight. Then they come back and they put it on the patient, and then we make decisions about how we mobilize the patient after that. But this is what it looks like. So again, just because I want to beat this point a little bit more, there's no literature to guide us here. There's some literature about um, uh, how to manage these folks either operatively or non-operatively. And remember that fracture picture, the majority of the compression and burst fracture can be managed really well uh, non-operatively. There's no evidence that says that bracing helps with reducing kyphosis or stability after the fracture, but there are a couple of good papers that suggest that bracing (coughs) will help with pain control, and the proprioceptive reminders um, to maintain precautions are to be careful to prevent additional injury. There is zero evidence that says that one brace is better than another. And there's nothing out there about how quickly <coughs> to mobilize a patient after they've been put into a brace, or whether or not to do any imaging when you're assessing. So we decided we have to look at this. If we can if we have no evidence, let's get together our own experts and figure this out. So I put a neurosurgery, uh, a neurosurgeon, an orthopedic spine surgeon, in myself in the room, and I thought that we would get to a solution, and someone's can... <laughs> gonna. Someone's gonna write me a really good joke about how that ends, but this this didn't work. So we realized, I would say quickly, but not so quickly, over about two and a half years that uh, we needed a much broader team. We needed to involve um, uh, the nursing education staff, the direct nursing staff on the floor, leadership, folks in the trauma program, we really needed our rehab team. We also had to talk to purchasing uh, some of our project support folks at the Value Institute and we had to figure out how to get any of this data out of EDH and then what to do with it with our data management folks. So this took on many stages of implementation and did not happen overnight. We started, I did my first um, preliminary case review in 2010. <coughs> we brought product, which we're going to talk about, into the system at the end of 2013 and we're just now Trying to look at our data. So, before we sort of get to some more of the punchline, I want Hillary to talk a little bit more about the scope of the problem. How many of these people are, are affected by this and why is this is important? <coughs> I
1: have to warn you, I'm very bad. <laughs> <laughs> All
0: right, so basically, as um, some of you may or may not know, we actually have a trauma registry here where we um, collect data. That we define a trauma patient at the very Inclusive, very detailed list of who is included in our trauma registry, um, and we put the information in, and we put everything from what happened at the scene of the accident to where they are discharged from the hospital and their courses stay in between. So we did; we were able to access some of that data. Um, so basically, um, we looked at a three-year period. Um, during that time, we had approximately forty-five hundred adult uh, traumas. Um, that This includes activations, alerts, consults, anything that's in our registry. Okay? They have an average length of stay of 2.6.2 2 days and an average ISS of approximately 20. So an ISS is an injury severity score. Basically it's based on your injury, where it is, and there's an assigned number that gets put on that. Okay? The higher your ISS, the more injured you are. The lower your ISS, the less injured you are. So an ISS of 20 is, you know, you're pretty injured, okay? Um, and basically, oh, see a bad clicker, bad clicker. Um, we were basically interested um, in the populations here that were identified with the TL spine fractures, okay? Over this period, 703 of these were in the registry 531 of them required consultations from the spine team. <sighs> See? Sorry. I have to become multi. <laughs> Over this three year period, 703 trial patients in the registry have <coughs> had these fractures. 531 required consultation from the spine team. Some patients um, had minor sp- spinous or transverse process fractures that could manage, be managed safely by the trauma team. So if, like if one ding, you don't need a spine consult. Generally, if it was you know, three or more. Um, and some of these patients did have to go to the OR. So we had to do, weed out some of these patients. Okay? Further, remainder basically focus on all the patients that just have the tail spine injuries that were managed non-operatively, okay, and were managed by a spine service. <laughs> um, so this, if you can look at this, so Team A, 23% of their patients were braced. Team B, 42% of their patients were braced. Okay, huge variance. Okay, um, 20, yes, sorry. Um, we also found variances in the number of x-rays that were ordered, as I showed earlier. So number of average x-rays ordered per patient. Team A, 1.8. Team B, 3.8. Same injuries for the most part, okay. Different bracing, different X-rays, okay. And what happens when you do this? The length of stay, okay. Length of stay for Team A was 6.29. Length of stay for Team B is 7. You know, it doesn't sound a lot but it is okay so let's talk about patient experience here this is kind of I, I picked the, the, the worst case scenario for lack of better words okay patient comes in on Friday okay admitted consults done after 5 p.m. say they were 37 year old motor vehicle accident okay Saturday they're lying flat all day they're NPO why they're lying flat <laughs> most likely they have a foliate why? They're lying flat. They're on a full spine cautions. Okay. Sunday, they're still lying flat. They, they still have a Foley. On Monday, because we have remember these braces that we had to get an outside vendor to do. On Monday, finally the vendor comes in and measures them for the brace. Okay. Tuesday, their brace arrives and it's placed head of bed at thirty degrees and an X-ray is done. Wednesday, X-rays reviewed. Yeah, because we never look at our X-rays the same day. They can go to head of bed 60 degrees. Okay. Now they get another X-ray. Thursday, X-ray reviewed. Head of bed to 90 degrees. Okay. All right. Friday, X-rays reviewed. They're mobilized. We assess them for discharge. If they didn't come out on Friday, they would have gotten their brace the next day, most likely, if it was early enough in the day. Okay. Huge issue. So what happens here? Okay. By changing our, and looking at this and drilling this down, we're increasing our quality of care. We're mobilizing patients safely, quickly, avoiding complications. Okay. Cost of a hospital stay. We can decrease it by two thousand dollars a day by giving these people, you know, an off-the-shelf or other type of bracing or trying to standardize our care. Cost of X-rays, three hundred dollars each. Do we really need three x-rays? Probably not. Cost of a custom TLSO brace, $1,800. Who paid for that? We didn't. And then what are the complications? They're lying flat in bed for five days. What's gonna happen? Did they get a cotting? Did they have a pressure ulcer? Have they developed an ileus because they've been laying flat in NPO, okay? And are they very happy with their care? Because we had them laying flat for five days? Okay. So it was difficult I will give um, the cost of the reimbursement for the custom braces because we pay for them as an institution and it's rolled up in your feet it was very hard to drill out the actual cost okay and we were actually rather amazed that we do just absorb that cost okay so, now that's
3: and I unfortunately am double swing so, <laughs> so I'm going to talk a little bit about uh, complications of immobility. Um, in rehab, we are all about mobilizing, safe mobilization, reducing risk by safely mobilizing and getting those patients up and going. Um, but um, I first want to talk about because I always like to ask your audience, what do you think on the units in and in, in your work are the Biggest barriers to mobilizing patients? Give me some ideas. Pain. 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 could be, yeah. Lack of equipment. Lack of equipment? Lifts. Walkers. Chairs,
4: pains, walkers.
3: <laughs> I like <Whatever>. <laughs> you. Live in, you live in my world. Any other kind of barriers to mobility you can think of? Fear. Order. Fear, orders, fear, fear, fear. absolutely. And why, why fear?
5: Um, because you don't know if something might happen, and if you're the person that's going to be the luckiest person to be stuck with, yeah. something like that.
3: We're finding that a lot, especially potentially new grads. In um, you know the the therapists who've worked with these patients a long time are pretty familiar with them, which is great. Um, but especially in new grads, they may not get all that training in terms of mobility, they may not know um, exactly how to mobilize. And you said one other up here. The,
4: position, the orders?
3: Yeah, that's, a, that's another one when I talk about conflicting orders. Um, and the activity orders, we also find are huge barriers, because they might not be very specific in the chart. One service might have one recommendation, another service might have another. So besides the fear for the nurse the fear for the patient, Yes, there is sometimes fear for the patient. Can
1: you think of any others?
3: On staff, yeah, or staff at nights. You know, another one we're finding before I go into the complications <clears throat> of immobility is patients' expectation to even get up. That the whole baseline of yeah, you're going to get up for meals. <laughs> you're gonna get up and you know sit in that chair for three meals a day or you know the concept of oh I'm in the hospital I'm sick well a lot of these patients are very sick but mobilization can be done safely and can really help so I'm going to kind of review real quickly the complications of um, immobility, and you guys already know of these so um, obviously issues with skin this is a huge piece for pressure injuries um, patient being immobile, as that was, the was saying, um, especially patients who have um, issues with their skin or um, certain weights, um, if they have low body mass, uh, sometimes if they have large body mass, The extremes, EDT, you know, we have those concepts related to pressure, uh, um, compression, but actually mobility is even better than a static approach or a, or um, um, immobile approach to mobilization. Um, we talked about urinary tract infections, absolutely, these patients are really to that. Um, respiratory, I'll talk a little bit about, and then delirium, I'll talk a little bit about, because all of these relate to an increased length of stay. And we're actually doing a own mobility project in the ICU that's been done at um, Johns Hopkins and a, and a couple other organizations. <laughs> they've shown that if you get those patients up and mobilized, the average decrease in the length of stay in the ICU is a half a day. Half a day is pretty big. <laughs> you can get them up and get them out. Button oh, oh, there right so, benefits of mobilization, as we said, there's a whole huge benefit for cardio and vascular and pulmonary um, concepts, um, getting the patients up and mobilized, and this is research, um, this is best practice and research driven. Um, a significant improvement in the physiology and the lung function with mobilizing the patients. Um, early mobility is part of that bundle, and Here's a, really, you, you all who work in the ICU with these patients know that this is true, but it's startling like, <clears throat> research that shows mobility is significantly, mobility significantly decreases delirium in the ICU. It, it, there's a significant relationship with mobility and the decrease in delirium. Um, ICU, please <coughs> Early, I see physical rehab programs have shown the cost of sa- um, cost savings and the reduction in length of stay. So I'm always the chair queen. They call me <laughs> always the one pushing for more chairs um, to get patients up and get them in chairs, even if they're sitting upright. It's significantly different than if they're sitting in a bed upright. There's a lot more work to sitting in a chair than to sitting in a chair bed. Okay, and a lot more can be done for. balance and mobility and stabilization and muscle strength if you're in a chair does that include the way that our beds do change into chairs is that true is that the same so our beds use that sort of mechanism in our beds very much in the institution hmm. and that's a first step that's a good step to actually have the head of the bed up but it does not impact the patient as significantly as getting them into out of the bed and into the chair, two impacts. Psychological,
4: Mm -hmm.
3: huge benefit. I'm not sick, I'm not laying in bed. And the whole impact of the trunk stability and the balance and the um, ability to hold that muscle strength in the chair and the position (coughs) is huge versus being supported in a chair bed and not having, you're still mobile. It's good to get up in those (coughs) chair beds. It does not replace <coughs> um, So the team looked at the alternatives to this brace and um, looked at the Aspen, the TLSO, and the custom fit and the cost between each and significant more cost for those custom white braces. And as Deb mentioned, there's no evidence for one or the other that shows there's any difference. In, um, in, the, um, in the difference between the braces. So, we, um, Dev has undertaken and we've um, really been hoping and helping support the TLSO <coughs> fitters. Um, all of the rehab staff is trained to fit the TLSO braces and um, we're continuing to support the nurses on the unit and the nurses on the unit should be the individuals who should be able to take those off and back on um, for care of the patient and then <coughs> all of our therapists go through every single year a competency to, to train and fit these prices. Okay. Cool. Oh, there's the education and training. Um, we started the comprehensive care training. It's a required competency now for OT and PT staff. Um, therapists that on and off seven days a week. Um, nursing can dawn and off, and then how um, staff, dev, educates the attendings, the senior residents, the associate providers and um, have established that order set to really help. So one of the additional things that we're doing also in working with team care with the pressure injury prevention and safe mobility is we'll be adding these prompts in our notes, in our documentation, We'll be adding them verbally in every handoff, every nursing handoff, and we'll hope those are carried through by the nurse to the next shift. And we're working on an initiative to standardize the language on every whiteboard so that you'll know if we're observing these TLSO braces for pressure injuries or positioning, etc. we'll have that on the whiteboard. Um, and additionally, um, the mobility aspect. This actually gets the patient up and mobilizing faster.
4: Any questions? A quick question questions. about discharging. Yeah. The patients go home with these, and yeah, what happens with the teaching as far as family members? We have
3: sheets. Um, we actually do the one-on-one training, seems to do the one-on-one training also. And we have actual handout sheets that we can give the patients. Um, the families there will train, will work great.
5: Yeah. I presume you still need a, a physician order to do this?
2: Oh, that's a perfect right. way. Thank mom. you. Yeah. Oh, you're I welcome. So we have to look at order sets, right? We have yep. to look at um, how a uh, so really great idea to train all the rehab staff and even all of the nurses to manage a brace like this and to encourage safe mobility. But it doesn't matter at all if it's not in the order, right? And as Rachel mentioned, we identified pretty quickly that our orders were part of the problem. That prior to um, 2012, prior to 2011, the orders just said spine cleared or spine uncleared. It didn't say which team was responsible for the spine uh, management. And it, this led to a lot of calls to the uh, bedside nurse to the residents, a lot of questions about clarification and a lot of delays to mobilization. And before I go any further, I just want to say that Wanda um, Handel, our uh, CNS for neurosciences, um, really led this part of our effort in shaping the order sets and um, helping us with the procedures. And unfortunately, isn't here this week why she would be telling her story herself. So when EDH went live, we saw it as an opportunity to start to shift um, the orders and to pay more attention to why it was a problem and who really benefits from the order. Who's the customer? And it's you know it's the patient, but it's also the nurse. The nurse, the bedside nurse, has to act on the order. They're a primary customer for making sure we communicate what we need to communicate. And the first thing that came up when Wanda was trying to assess, you know, what's the number one thing we need to do is I have to identify who's really responsible for this part of the management um, of of this injury. What does cleared and "uncleared" mean? Well, it meant a lot of different things to a lot of different people. And so that wasn't helpful language. And then there was some other language around managing the uh, cervical spine. What does it mean to manually stabilize the head? That was language in our last order uh, in 2011. And when you say to somebody, you are going to manually stabilize that person's neck. What does the bed nurse feel like? We're, who said fear earlier? <laughs> <laughs> Terrified, right? But are, is that really what we're doing? No, if the patient's spine was that unstable, they'd be in the OR. This is a stable spine. This is a person with a stable fracture, and otherwise, again, they'd have other instrumentation to um, create that stability. So we had um, plenty of opportunity to work with. So um, as we brought uh, uh, our nursing customers into the team uh, with our surgeons to talk, to hash this out a little bit. And so we clarified the issues around the cervical spine, but we also created a lot more detail in this spine precautions order. We got rid of the confusing language and talked about the different aspects of precautions that are required whether someone has a brace or not. So it's one order. One of the problems with using an order set versus an order is that if you use an order set, it's great in the initial um, admission, for example, of a patient, but, and that all, because all those orders are linked in one place, activity, diet, spine precautions. But the next day, when you go back and you want to change something, the residents don't go back through that initial order set. They go in through a back door and just change that one piece of the order set. So it doesn't prompt them to look the rest. So we had to think about a way to get all of these pieces. We didn't want someone changing mobility, but not changing the bracing order. So we put it all together. So what this order now does is clearly identifies which team is responsible for managing this um, injury, this aspect of care. It identifies whether or not a brace is need- needed for the cervical or the <laughs> thoracolumbar aspect of the spine. And then what can a patient do with the brace on and the brace off? So this was another big problem. Um, uh, Kelly could probably help articulate this more, but when someone said um, uh, spine precautions, but someone was in a brace, it was unclear what the patient could do while they were in the brace versus when they're lying in bed and have the brace off. That wasn't articulated in the order anywhere. So people just did what?
4: Okay. Kind of made up their own rules, <laughs> to right? be honest. Or left the patient <laughs> oh, right. this in bed.
2: And so now the other piece that we changed is that now when nurses open up the orders, they see it all in one view. So instead of just seeing something that says spine precautions that you have to open and try to decipher, it's all in one. It it expands automatically under uh, patient safety precautions. So the next step is tackling this great system of policy tech, and we're not quite done yet. We've been working on this for um, a little bit uh, over a year. But what we are doing is working this into a procedure so that, with job aids, so that's easily referenced for any nurse coming on the floor, not just how to order the brace, um, but uh, who do you call, how do you manage it. We've created a video that'll be linked into how to don and doff the uh, uh, non-custom TLSO uh, to provide uh, extra support. So when we implemented this change, we brought the new brace, the, now, again, this is a custom fit, not a custom made. This is a brace that we can store off the shelf, but it does need to be adjusted, which is why Deb spoke to the need for training the rehab staff on how to make those adjustments. Well, we brought this um, brace in at the end of 2013, and I was all excited because we had already seen this trend of the physicians ordering fewer custom braces just by the fact that we were talking about it and looking at the evidence and finding there wasn't any. And so I expected we would continue to see that trend and that really upset when we saw this incredible um, increase in the order of braces. When we talked to the surgeons, they told us, well hey, now we know that there's a relatively inexpensive product and we think it's gonna help our patients with pain management, we wanted to try it out more. So they ordered more braces in the beginning. Um, and we're seeing that stabilize a, out a little bit. What I think is most interesting about this slide is if you look at the difference in bracing between uh, team A and team B. So here we have a lot of um, variance, that 23 to 48% of the patients with non-operative fractures were braced between the two teams, and now they're pretty similar. They're bracing about the same amount of patients per year. So we're reducing that variance. And for the custom orders, this is what's happened. We've seen this general decrease for both teams, excuse me, especially Team B, and how many custom braces they're ordering. They're not gone, right? Even though we know that there's no evidence to support them, we haven't eliminated them completely, but we're definitely trending um, in the right direction. And then these are the orders for our the new brace, <laughs> which again you can see that uptick where you know, you get a new product, people are kind of excited, they want to see what it does, and now it's stabilizing, I think, to represent more appropriate clinical decision-making. So um, Deb mentioned, and I think Hilary also mentioned, the difference in cost between these two pieces of equipment. The custom-made TLSO, in addition to the complications of immobility, that it took an extra day or more, um, we, Dartmouth Hitchcock, pays the outside prosthetic and orthotic company um, one of the, about two thousand dollars every time that brace comes into our building. We eat that cost. It's rolled into the patient's bill. We can't <coughs> back how much reimbursement we ever get for that. We just write a check for the P&O company and it's done. Um, so anytime that brace, which has no evidence behind it, comes into the building, it's a two thousand dollar cost to the hospital. Now the um, Vista, the Aspen Vista TLSO costs us um, mm-hmm. about It listed 280 when I wrote the slide, but it's down to about 240 now per brace. We can stock it on our shelves, we can have it accessible within 30 minutes, or as soon as the PC or OT gets the consult, it can be on the patient. So instead of a minimum of 24 hours, we're talking an hour of getting a brace on the patient to encourage mobility. So this is what it looks like. So when we look at our cost from purchasing, um, how much money we spent on back braces in um, 2010, it was almost $200,000 a year. And in 2014, we spent about $65,000. The red is the Vista Aspen braces, the blue is the custom braces. So you can see that this trend of fewer custom braces was uh, already happening before we brought in the alternative. Again, I really think that's because we pulled together this multidisciplinary team to look at the evidence and start talking about why people are doing uh, uh, practicing in the way that they do. So our next step to really dive in deeper is to look more at the disparity in the use of imaging. We're seeing a little bit of a trend down, but still a wide variance between how the two teams are using imaging to assess the patient before they mobilize. That's our next uh, thing to tackle. Ideally, we're going from this experience (coughs) of the patient being flat for several days and maybe here to a week just to mobilize, to the ideal uh, case, where after the consult is written for the spine service and a brace order, it's pulled off the shelf, it's fit to the patient, mobilized, uh, the patient may or may not have one, maybe x-ray, and that's reviewed and the patient is mobilized within four days. Oh, and one of the slides that Hillary showed you, she showed you that the average length of stay for trauma patients is about eight days, all of our trauma patients, all 4,500, with an average injury severity score of about 20. But when we pulled out those 700 folks with um, thoracolumbar fractures, their average length of stay, um, I'm sorry, the the general trauma population was about six days. The spine patients with a lower injury severity score of an average of about 16 had a higher length of stay. So we're looking at a subgroup of people who are less injured than the entire trauma population but a (coughs) two-day longer length of stay. That's why this is important. This is why, it's because of that immobility. So we have, um, of course that would be a great smoking gun if we said that we reduced the length of stay by um, two days or the ideal by three or four days in these patients and we haven't quite achieved that. Both teams have um, reduced the length of stay in this patient population. Neither of these differences are proving to be statistically significant yet. We're still looking at our 2015 data Um, but you know in uh, the grand scheme of things half a day or a day still matters so I think that this is still of clinical and fiscal value even though we're not seeing the statistical significance yet. So we've done some great work but this isn't a randomized controlled trial. There aren't many (coughs) RCTs about durable medical equipment or um, things like bracing. We don't yet have measures of functional status and that's a whole nother talk Deb and I can give some time, but we don't have a great system in place to say how this really mattered to the patient. How did the mobility make a difference? How are they able to function more independently? What did, what did this matter as far as where they went um, after discharge? We don't have any post-acute data. We don't have data from follow-up visits. If a patient was seen by an orthopedist, um, they get their follow-up was in the spine center. If they're seen by a neurosurgeon, it may not be. So it's not seen by the same, they're not seen by the same team in follow-up. We're not capturing any data about their functional status, their pain, how much they wore the brace, um, et cetera, at follow-up. We have no idea what happens to them after discharge. It's a relatively small number um, to look at a comparison group over time. Uh, And we continue to have some variability. Even showing this data to some of the surgeons, it hasn't eliminated the variance altogether. And there are a whole bunch of other things as we go that contribute to length of stay, not just whether or not somebody is mobilized and has a back So what we're doing now is we continue to share this data with um, the residents and the surgeons. We're almost done with our 2015 chart review. The goal is to have a system where we're doing this more rapidly and getting the feedback to the teams um, within a three or four month period so that we can again continue to reduce the variance. I don't know if anyone's familiar with some of the cardiovascular work that Phil Goodney's been involved in. Where, the, the, uh, where he saw the biggest difference is when he can get feedback to the surgeons about the variants in practice within at least a three month period of having <coughs> done that practice. So when you wait a year or two and then go back and say, oh, this is what the decisions you made last year, behavior <coughs> change. Um, Greg Hansen is uh, generously working on our first draft of our manuscript um, and that we will be sending to the General Spine for um, the summer. And we continue to support and build our relationships with Aspen Medical. Um, but we, are look, we need to look a little bit deeper at what are some of these confounding variables and why we don't yet see the statistical significance in the difference in length of stay. And we want to look a little bit more um, closely at this concept of ownership. What, um, how well we're articulating that and sharing that with our nursing staff. Does it matter? To, uh, does the patient's course of care differ if they're maintained on the trauma service, or if this is a more isolated injury and the primary service is the spine service. We're not really sure. We have some thoughts about that, we're not really sure. We have no idea if patients like this brace. We don't know if they're more satisfied using this brace as opposed to the other brace. We hope to do a little bit more of a chart review to understand if this affects our use of opioids or pain management. Theoretically, we think it does, that if somebody's in this brace and we're mobilizing them more quickly, we hope that we're using fewer narcotics. And again, we want to look more closely at what this all means as far as someone's functional recovery. So what we've done, we've talked about the variance in care in our approach to patients with nonoperative traumatic spine fractures. We've heard about the complications related to that variance and how that affects our value equation. We've heard about how order sets hopefully policies and procedures can um, uh, uh, influence that change. We've seen how the number of custom braces have decreased just by having this team come together. Not just from bringing in a product, but by bringing the team together to have these conversations and give you the evidence. We have reduced the variance. And again, the value of care we think has increased with the improved uh, patient experience, fewer complications, less length of stay. And in a more fiscally responsible way, are reducing cost, lost cost from the um, durable medical equipment. So I'm going to stop there, and express my uh, gratitude to the rehab medicine folks, but also to the nurse educators, the specs, and everybody on three five West, where these patients are um, most commonly cared for. And graciously thank our patients who have been very patient with us as we're learning with the new bracing procedure. So, thank you. And I'd love to hear
5: questions and feedback about this project. Thanks. This is really exciting work that you're doing. And I'm trying to imagine how you would find from a patient um, how they would experience their experience um, and try to compare it to somebody who, you know, this patient didn't get a brace, and they got this amount of pain, and this person got a brace, and they got this amount, they're two different people, two different breaks, and how do you envision studying this as you go forward?
2: That's a great question. The only thing that we can really uh, think about is doing um, it retrospectively. So to case match uh, patients that may have been cared for two or three years ago before the brace was here, maybe with a similar fracture type and age group and comorbidities, and then someone that may be getting the brace and having a different experience. But you're right, it's a huge limitation. When you bring in a product that just makes sense um, and seems to provide such added value, it's hard to think about how to do a randomized control trial or how you compare one patient to the next. There's a lot of
5: variability. And just any other suggestions, we can do it. (coughs) Well, just looking at the picture, I know which brace I would want, not the one that was a... A, a suitcase. <laughs> <laughs> so here's another
2: interesting question. If um, when we're talking about shared decision making, your informed patient choice. What if we told patients you have the option of these two braces, and there's no evidence to say which one is clinically better
3: than the other. Which one would you like to have?
2: Mm.
3: Right, that'd be fun. Yeah. Well, one way you can think about that is you can compare groups and and think about quality, like you know, questionnaires. You know, because, the, you know, people's, it, you, can, you can measure functional capacity and, and all the things that you're talking about. You can also think about of life questions about, you know, how much time does it take to put this on? Mm-hmm. Are you more functional because of less time putting the brace on? It's, it's uncomfortable. Uh, you know, the braces are definitely different comfort levels. They might be able to be more active, but, like, you know, there's a lot of things that you can kind of think about. And, and look at going forward.
2: That's a great point. Another um, uh, thing is also has come up as a barrier to discharge. So the custom TLSO, the white hard plastic, requires at least one other person to help you put it on, mm-hmm. whereas the um, Aspen Vista is something mm-hmm. that um, you can put on yourself, pull it on like a vest and it's not nice. okay. yeah, So I'm
3: curious, of course it would be the psychosocial piece, <laughs> of course for you, perfect. So So you have the two teams, that have very disparate and different viewpoints on how they want to manage things. So um, what was a strategy that actually worked to help pull them into the project?
2: So I think this is one of those pieces that hopefully is transferable outside of this setting, but to any other team faced with some similar variability, is we just went to the evidence. Help me understand why your practice is X. Well, it's the way I've always done it, okay? Mm-hmm. What evidence do you base your practice on? Well, I don't know, it's what my senior taught me when I was a resident. Okay, let's take a look. If you can have, you know, lucky enough time to have relatively younger surgeons commit to this project who are more familiar with the research and more willing to say, You know, I really don't know why we're doing this. I just want to be in the OR. So if (laughs) you can help me figure out how to raise patients.
4: (laughs) (laughs) So little clinical documentation on the inpatient side, and it was a good point that you brought up about how the patient isn't always once discharged that they're always seen by the same provider when they come back or the same team versus neurosurgery versus orthopedics, and. For reimbursement when they come back to the same provider it goes to a diagnosis related group of um, aftercare which is a relative weight but if they go to say they were seen by ortho but then they never go back to ortho and they go see neurosurgery then that's an initial encounter which is a totally different relative weight and charge so there there is um, a need to see how, where these people are coming back to and how they're followed up. Because it makes a difference in revenue for the institution. So I also think it makes a difference for patients. And in that too.
2: And uh, one of the things that we're trying to do on the trauma service is uh, uh, implement a polytrauma follow up clinic run by nurse practitioners. And so that regardless, these are folks who did not go to the OR they don't need their follow-up appointment with a surgeon. So um, whether or not we consider it an initial encounter, we still have to sort of figure it out. But it will be the same team of nurse practitioners from the trauma service that see that patient in follow-up um, to provide a little bit more continuity and a little bit more um, attention, we hope, to some of those other factors of function
3: and quality of life. But we definitely need to talk more about it.
2: <coughs> we have folks from me. I'm not sure if I can hear you if you talk or if you have any other questions. I know that one of the things that um, Dr. Cruz and I have talked about in the past is what our orders look like at the time of discharge. And that's something that we still have a lot of opportunity to improve. So the way these look on the inpatient side are starting to make sense to us. But when we discharge Patients we need to make uh, do a better job of clarifying on the discharge summary what those precautions are for someone when they aren't in this acute facility anymore. What are the precautions in rehab? What are the precautions for families at home? So it's definitely something we're working on, but I want to make sure if there are any questions or comments from Mana that we get <laughs> I don't think we got a Thanks
4: any for questions. tuning in. <laughs> <laughs> I can't uh, hear them, I'm sorry. <laughs> yeah, we're talking. I don't know why you can't hear We're us. Okay. talking we can't. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> <laughs> we can't. Sorry. You can email Judy. Judy's on her
2: email and uh, uh, is happy to take a few last minute questions. Any other thoughts or feedback or questions about this project? It's been incredibly oh. slow growing and really frustrating for me when I talk about that. this, though, and a lot of audience, they're like, why have you that done in six years? <laughs> Um, But I think we're making progress. I think it's making a difference for patients, and we definitely have a little bit more work to do. And for me, the hardest job, well, for all of us, we're all clinicians, and so the hard job now is for us to really figure out how to articulate the value of what we've done and get it out
4: there. Jean. A comment, good research takes time. So good work. (laughs) Good comments. One question: um, A lot of uh, patients, that have <laughs> and um, is there any uh, problems with skin with contact of these braces happening, especially yeah. very fragile Great skin, skin? So none of the braces should be directly on the skin. Oh. So, um, but. Definitely with the custom TLSO,
2: there's less opportunity for air movement and a little bit more opportunity for some um, point pressure areas and some skin pinching. With the custom, with the non-custom, with the Vista, the black brace, there's a whole lot more um, opportunity to see the skin and more opportunity to make some adjustments so we alleviate some of those pressure points. So with the custom TLSO and Help me out, Rachel and Kelly. We saw a lot of irritation in the axillas yeah. and then some on the hips, right and then sometimes we would have pinching up along the side. And we had a really hard time. We actually had to start stocking t-shirts mm-hmm. to um, mm-hmm. encourage folks to make sure that a t-shirt got on the patient. It seems like common sense, but when you're in a hurry and you want to get a patient mobilized, mm-hmm. right? You're slapping that brace on. And if someone's up without a t-shirt, you can guarantee you've got a skin issue in twelve hours. The um, other sort of culture shift with these braces is that remember we're not stabilizing the spine, If it needed stabilization, the patient would have been taken to the OR. So these braces, the intent is really to help support the patient in mobilizing with as little pain as possible, which means they don't need to be flat to have the brace put on. This is a culture shift, we're not quite there yet. Theoretically, patients should be able to be supported to get to the edge of the bed and put that brace on themselves, which also means it can be off when they're sitting up in a chair, it can be off when they're in the shower if they can maintain their precautions, that the wear time of the brace should decrease, also helping us with protective skin. Excellent, thank you. ready to it <laughs>